let's, uh, let's look at the 128th Psalm. We are still in the Psalms of Ascent, those 15 Psalms beginning with Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. And uh, these, uh, so this, this songbook is really a songbook within a songbook. And uh, the purpose of these 15 psalms, as we have seen repeatedly in our study, was to serve as a hymn book to guide the pilgrims in their worship as they traveled from their villages up to uh, Jerusalem and the temple to worship God. And so they're called psalms of ascent because they are ascending. The Hebrew word means to step up. And they're moving up, not only up the mountain physically, but they're moving up the mountain spiritually. And there seems to be uh, a sense of progression uh, as they move up the mountain, not only as they get closer to Jerusalem, but as they get closer to their place of worship and to their central focus on God. So it's, it's kind of a guide. It's kind of a guide to spiritual pilgrims in, in helping us to get closer to our Lord. Now, Psalm 128 is very similar in content to what we studied last week in Psalm 127. Uh, you'll remember last week's uh, psalm was the only psalm that's written by Solomon. And in that Psalm 127, he is talking very um, frankly and very uh, transparently about the sovereignty of God. Remember he says, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain who build it. Uh, and he says that except the Lord uh, build a house, except the Lord build a home, except the Lord build a church. Uh, the inference is, is significant that, that uh, some, the, the New Testament commentary on Psalm 127 would be John 15, 5. Where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same, bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do what, church? Nothing. nothing. That's a zero with the edges knocked off. He's saying you can do nothing without me. So Psalm 127, the focus is on the absolute indispensability of God and his sovereignty. That without God, it's useless, it's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. Well, we turn the coin over and we look at the other side of the coin in Psalm 128. And Psalm 128 is telling us uh, not just that God is sovereign, but that when God does work to build a house, or God does work to build a family, or God does work to build the church, we work with him that we cannot passively just lay this in God's lap and, and say, uh, you know, you do it, God. God has a calling for us to cooperate with him. And so we see that side of, um, of this coin in Psalm 128. I, I want to read the psalm and then we'll... we'll try to unpackage it a little bit better. Psalm 128, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. How blessed 
is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Within your house, your children like olive plants, around, uh, like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, what is something that's a universal longing of every human being, I believe? Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're rich or poor, regardless of your, your race, creed, or color, it is a universal longing in the heart of man. What would that be? Well, this psalm addresses that universal longing. It's a longing for true fulfillment, satisfaction, and happiness. Now, we are sometimes guilty in evangelical circles and in ministry circles, and I plead guilty because I have done this too, is that we, we sometimes, though we do not say it, we almost imply it that it is less than spiritual to pursue happiness. And we have communicated, and, and we do it by saying things like this, and it's a truism, it's very true, that God is more interested in us being holy than in us being happy. You ever heard that before? I've said it. And that is a truism. God is more interested in us being holy. But what is unsaid in that statement is that you can't, you can't have happiness without holiness. And that the best way to be fulfilled and satisfied is when we pursue God's will and way. Now the psalmist here opens up by saying how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now that word blessed is a word which means happy. And uh, it, it kind of sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, how happy are those that fear? <laughs> that seems like a, uh, you know, like What's a good oxymoron? I don't want to make my military buddies here <laughs> mad, but like military intelligence, you know, it, 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 sometimes they just don't go together. Um, uh, but anyway, he's saying here that, uh, that the way to be truly happy is to find yourself right. You, you know what smack dab means? That's, that's a Greek phrase. I don't know if you really understand. If you, it's to find yourself smack dab in the middle of the will of God. That's the place where we find true joy and true happiness. Now, 
He uses the word blessed here several times. You see it in verse 1, how blessed. And, and then uh, no, notice here, I marked them in, in, in my Bible here. He, he says in verse 2, you will be happy and it will be well with you. That's the word blessed also. That's the same word, just translated happy in that verse. He says in verse 4, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And then he, he gives a benediction in verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. So here we see basically three things in the psalm. We see the requirements for living a blessed life. And I've really titled this psalm, The Key to Living a Blessed Life. We could put it this way, The Key to Living a Happy Life. Now, he, he gives us, first of all, in verse 1, the requirements to living a happy life. And then in verses 2 through 4, he talks about the realm of life in which this happiness is expressed or this blessedness is expressed. And he highlights two realms, our work life and our home life. And we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But if you want to go ahead and fill that out. Now, when he says requirements for God's living a blessed life, there are two of those. Number one, there must be a proper center to our life. In other words, we've got to have our focus on the right thing. Uh, and, and if we're not focused on the right thing, true fulfillment, satisfaction, biblical happiness will evade us. So we've got to make sure that we are, we have, we're centered on the right thing, a proper center. Then number two, the second requirement for living a blessed and happy life, not only to have a proper center, but to have a proper circumference. In other words, we've got to be focused on the right thing, and we've got to stay within the right bounds. And if we step outside those boundaries that God has set, then we're inviting our happiness to disappear. So we'll come back and look at that a little bit later. So there is the requirements, a proper center, and a proper circumference. There's the realm, the realm of our work life, verses 2 through 4, and the realm of our home life. And in verses 5 and 6, he closes with a benediction, and I call it the request for God's blessing. The request for God's blessing. Now, just to, just to reinforce what I've said, that it's not unspiritual to pursue happiness. If you will remember the very first sermon Jesus ever preached, what, what, where would that be found in Scripture? The first sermon, huh? Matthew 5, it's called the Sermon on the what? On the Mount. And you remember how that sermon begins in chapter 5, verses 1 through like 12? What's that called? The Beatitudes. And how do those Beatitudes begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, and he goes on, and it lists all of those beatitudes. Not, not do attitudes, but beatitudes. Now, that word blessed is the same word. It means happy. So Jesus, the first sermon Jesus ever preached, the, the title and the focus of that sermon was on true, true joy. So now, let, let's, let's look just a little bit and a little closer, at the requirements, the requirements. The word blessing here is a, a word which is found over 40 times in the Old Testament alone, and half of them 
are found in the Psalms. Over half, some 25 uh, uh, times is found in the Psalms. Now, the main message of the Psalms, and you've been studying them for a long, long time, the main message in the Psalms is the blessing that comes on a man or a woman who fears and walks with God. The blessings are blessing that comes upon a man or a woman who fears and walks with God. Now, I, I want to ask you a question, and I, I really w- want you to think about it because we, we say this so often. When you say, God bless you, what are you wanting God to do? When you say, God bless you, what are you asking God to do? That's what this psalm is asking. It is asking God to bless those that fear Him and those that walk in the center of His will. Usually when we say God bless you, it's after somebody sneezes, you know. Uh, and, and that goes back a long way. You're probably familiar with that story of, uh, you know, uh, ring around the roses, pocket full of toses, tissue, tissue, we all fall down. Well, that comes from the plague. That pictures children that are dying. And their pockets are full of tissue because the first sign of the plague was sneezing. And when children would get the plague, people would pray for them. God bless you. They were asking God to change the circumstances. They were asking God to intervene and to, to, to remove the, what was considered in those days a judgment upon them and upon their community. So when, when we say God bless you, then we need to define blessing. Let me give you a definition of blessing. It refers to the inner condition of the heart. And here's some synonyms. It it helps me when I just look at what this means, some synonyms. it's, It's synonymous with these words. Fulfilled, satisfied, happy, rich, full of peace. And so really what this psalm is doing, it's unlocking the secret of a truly fulfilled life. And what we're talking about in this psalm, listen, there are people in this world, all over this world, who would give their right arm to have what this psalm is offering. Uh, they, They are. What this psalm is offering is what our world is in such terrible need for. This psalm is the answer to the to the opium question in our in our nation, to the epidemic of drugs and alcohol and, 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 and road rage. And if, if people could find the peace that this psalm is trying to offer us, it, uh, Sheriff, it would cut out a lot of your business and a lot of my business, you know, uh, because it, it would begin to, to, to bring about peace in people's hearts that they're searching for and they can't find. Well, so what does it mean, God bless you? I, I love one of my favorite sermons, and I, I, I don't know, I got so many sermons I'd love to preach, you know, you just, you just try to find which one. But I love to preach this sermon. I do it in revivals a lot. It's, it's on the loaves and fishes, you know. Uh, 
And it says, Jesus took the loaves and fishes, and he looked toward heaven, and he blessed them. What does that mean? He blessed them. You know what it means? It means he put something in it that wasn't there when he got it. Amen? Uh, and he had to. Because in itself, it would only feed that little boy and maybe a friend. But when Jesus got through with it, it fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So that simply means when he blessed it, he put something in it that wasn't there when he got it. When, when, I'm, when I'm praying for you and I say, God bless you. I'm praying that God would put something in you, that God would work in you, that he would work in you peace and satisfaction and happiness. I'm wanting God to be active in your life. It's not just a little trite saying, uh, you know, as a conversational piece. When we really mean it, God bless you. That's a great prayer to pray for somebody. If we really, really want to. So, so um, when we say God bless you, that's, that's what we're talking about. Now let's, let's look at the requirements for God's blessing. And that's found in verse 1 again. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now here is the first requirement. I said there are two requirements uh, for God's blessing. The first one is what we would call reverence or fear. I've chosen to, to put it this way, a proper center. A proper center. I, I, I picked that up from uh, John Phillips, uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers. And John, uh, I, I saw how John had dealt with that, and I liked it a lot. I liked his better than mine. I was going to just say reverence, but I think the, the, it, the proper center really helps me to see what we're talking about here. Now, if we are to have true happiness, then our lives must be centered in the Lord. Now, notice this. This is dealing with the in, inner man. Fearing the Lord deals with the inner man. It's, it's the attitude of our heart toward God. If we're going to have happiness, then it's going to start on the inside, right? How many of you know that almost every time God does a work in us, he starts on the inside? You, you know, when the world wants to change us, where does it start? On the outside, you know? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose some weight. <laughs> I'm going to dye my hair. I'm, you know, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to get a little surgery done, <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. And uh, I, I'm going to clean, I'm going to start on the outside. I'm going to get things right. But you know, the problem with that is it don't last very long. Now, listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. The very God of peace sanctify you holy in your spirit, soul, and body. Do you notice that? That's God's order. The way God works in us is spirit first, soul, emotion, mind, and will, and then body. So God does his deepest work in our spirit. And then he works out through our soul, impacting our mind, our emotions, and will, and ultimately impacting our body. Now, so he's talking, first of all, 
about the heart. And, and the first requirement is to have a is to have our, our, our mind, emotions, and will, our soul, our spirit centered on the Lord. Now, that word fear, let me comment on that a little bit. When he, when he says uh, in verse 1, how happy are those that fear the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, obviously, the word fear here doesn't mean to cringe. Uh, let me put it this way. To fear the Lord in a biblical sense doesn't mean that I'm afraid God's going to hurt me. It means I'm afraid I'm going to hurt him. Now let me say that one more time. Fearing God in the biblical sense, as a child of God, I'm not afraid now God's going to come and bust me over the head, you know. I don't live in fear, but there is an awe and a reverence about my thinking about God so that when I think about God, I think about it from the standpoint that I love him. I think about it from the standpoint of what he has done for me. And the bottom line is in light of all, in light of who he is and what he's done for me, I don't want to grieve him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to disappoint him. So living in the fear of God is living with that attitude. It's living with an attitude that I, 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 I don't want to displease God I, because I love him and I'm grateful and I live a life with an attitude of gratitude for all that God has done for me, all out of his grace, none of it because I deserved it, but all of it because in his grace he has acted graciously toward me. So that's the, that's the first requirement is, is to have a proper center, a proper center. Uh, so that, that makes me just ask this question, what is at the center of your life and my life? Deuteronomy 17, 19 says, It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. How will he learn to fear? By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So you see, the fear of the Lord is, is a learned activity. We learn to as we study the Word of God. I wonder, have you ever been reading the Word of God and the Spirit of God just brings you to a point where you just tremble? you just tremble you tremble to think about the awesomeness of who God is and the fact that in his awesomeness he has chosen to act in grace toward you and me well so there is the proper center the scripture says the fear of the Lord you might want to write this reference down the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 8.13. And then Proverbs uh, 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. I like that. You might sleep satisfied. Isn't that a good phrase? Untouched by evil. Well, so... A proper center. Now, uh, the second one is this. 
not only a proper sinner, but obedience. Now again, I defer to John Phillips. He said it so much better than me. I was going to say reverence and obedience till I read John. And John says, not only a proper sinner, but a proper circumference. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the circumference means the, the edges of our life. Uh, the edges of, of, of our walk with God. Where, where can we walk with God and not step outside of the circumference? So uh, it really is a, a reference to the law of God. So you've got two requirements here, two requirements for blessing, the Lord and the law. The Lord, that's our proper center, and the law, that's our proper circumference. In other words, true happiness will be found as we focus on the Lord and as we walk within the circumference of God's will and way, which is expressed in His law. Now, we're not saved by keeping the law, but the law is a perfect expression of the will of God. And as we are filled with God's Spirit, here's, here's, a, here's something that blessed me when I, I discovered it. Do you know that every one of the Ten Commandments with the exception of the Sabbath day commandment, is repeated in the New Testament as the fruit of the Spirit-filled life. No, we're not saved by keeping the law, but if we're filled with the Spirit, the law becomes the passion of our heart. And we don't keep the law in order to be saved, we keep the law because we are saved. And we keep the law because the law is an expression of the heart and mind of God and we're affectionately in love with the God who created the law. We want to please that God. We want to walk in obedience and fear to Him. So the law becomes our circumference. And what he's saying is this, that if I want true happiness, I've got to walk within the framework of the revealed will of God, which is the law of God. And the most miserable I will ever be, or any Christian, is when I step outside that circumference. You ever been there? I don't, don't look like a... <laughs> we all have, haven't we? And that's a bad place to be. And the most miserable I've ever been was not when I was unsaved. It's when I became a Christian and then I stepped outside the circumference and God convicted me. I'm glad God did. I'm glad he did. You see, if you can live outside the circumference of God's will repeatedly on and on and on without conviction, then my heart fears for you. It's not that a Christian can't sin, but a Christian, when they do sin, their heart, like Peter, when he cursed and denied the Lord, Scripture says he went out and wept. And wept. That's what happens when a Christian violates the circumference of God's will. All right, so that, that, is, uh, that is the requirement. Let's look at the realm real quickly. The realm of God's blessing is found in, in verses 2 through 4. The first one is our... Uh, Work life. Notice what he says in verse 4. Behold, for thus says shall the, the man be blessed who fears the Lord. I, I'm sorry. Uh, look at uh, verse 2. 
When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. When you shall eat with the fruit of your hands. Now, what, what does that mean? That means God, when we, when we fear the Lord and we walk within the circumference of His will for our life and we pursue Him passionately, we put Him first in our life, then we can expect that what we do, now this is not talking about just our vocation. It's our avocation. It's everything we put our hand to do. He says whatever we put our hand to do, our work life, not just our vocation, but whatever we put our shoulder to to do, whether it's a student, you're going to school, whether you're in the military, you're a soldier, or whether you're a public servant, whatever you put your hand to do, he's saying here. He's saying that your work life, that you will be blessed that God will bless. He's not giving a blanket promise that you'll get promoted before anybody else or that you're going to be absolutely the best in, in, in whatever you do, but it means that God is going to take notice of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and God is going to bless that. That's just a good thing to know. It's a good thing to know. So he, he's saying here, in your work life, we reap the reward of our of our work. In, in the words of, of Haggai the prophet, you, you don't remember this, he said, uh, we, Haggai said, you put your money into bags with holes. You remember that passage? Uh, I, I, I know that feeling. You put your money in bags with holes. Uh, and so he's saying here, when you put God first and you seek Him and you have the right center and the right circumference and you're seeking to follow Him, and then with the work of your hands, I'm going to bless it. You're going to be able to get by. You may not be the richest guy on the block. You may not, uh, you know, but, but, but I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. So he says the realm of God's blessing is the work life. I, I love uh, Ruth Graham had a sign over her kitchen window in their home. It's, it said, worship services conducted here three times a day. <laughs> that's, that's good. And by that she meant that, that her, her vocation, her cooking those meals was an act of worship to God. She feared God. She lived within the circumference of God's will. So whatever she did was an act of worship to God. Well, the second realm, not only the work life, but the home life. Look, look at verses three and four. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Well, he's talking here about God's blessing not only on your work life, but upon your family life. And he uses the fruitfulness of the woman in that, in that culture in that day. It, children were so very, very important. But he's not, and we're not to conclude from this, that God is saying there that, uh, that every woman will be fruitful as a vine in, the, in terms of reproducing children. We know that some women desperately would love to have children, and they don't, in God's providence. And, uh, and, and I understand that, and the psalmist understands that. He's stating simply a general principle, not a promise here. He's saying that if we put God at the center of our life and we walk in the circumference of His will, 
as a general principle, that's the normal thing you can expect. But God in His sovereignty has, has other plans sometimes too. And He walks us through. Not all, it's not always cream and ice cream and cake, you know. It's sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's other things too. Castor oil and, <laughs> and other medicine. Uh, so there, there is the home life. He says, the children are be like, will be like olive plants. I, I studied this about the olive plant, and it's an interesting thing. You know, it takes at least seven years for an olive tree to even have the first plant. But even those are not good. It usually takes about 15 years to have any kind of fruit. And they grow in dry soil. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you've seen them. But here's the amazing thing. It takes a long time for them to get started, but then they reproduce for hundreds of years. Do you know there are still olive trees on the Mount of Olives that were there, have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they still produce olives. So what, what he's saying here is this. Your children will be like olive branches. They will, they will be, as we were talking last week, those children will continue through the years to bear the witness to walking in the circumference of God and living with a focus on God. Well, we come to the last thing, and that's the request for God's blessing. Uh, verses, uh, uh, verses 1 through 4, it, it seems like this is a, a, a short sermon that the priest preaches when these pilgrims are in the temple. It's kind of a homily, just four little verses. But then the, the last two verses is a benediction that he gives after the sermon. Now, uh, it's amazing how God can say so much with such an economy of words, isn't it? I know what you're, you're thinking. Why can't preachers do that? <laughs> but God has a way of saying so much with so few words. And so after these opening verses, talking about the circumference and the center, talking about the work life and the home life, it's like the priest says, and before I leave, I want to give you a blessing. And so he gives them this, this blessing. We call this the request for God's blessing. He says, verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, you may see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this benediction is also a prayer request for God to, to be upon his people in a very special way. Now, they know now how to, how to do that. They, we've looked in verses 1 through 4. They know if they will stay uh, pointed in the right direction, at the right focus, and with the right circumference. They know how to do it. And now he's simply praying a benediction, and he's asking them to, uh, to do what they have learned and what they know they are to do. He's, he's, he's asking, he's petitioning that they can experience what he's just talked about. He says, God bless them from Zion. Now, where is Zion? Well, Zion is twofold. First of all, there is a heavenly Zion. And the heavenly Zion is the abode of God. It's God's throne room in heaven. 
That's, that's one dimension of Zion. Sometimes when the scripture talks about Zion, he's talking about the heavenly Zion and the throne room of God in heaven. But then there's a second dimension and meaning of Zion, and that's the earthly Zion, and that's the temple in Jerusalem. So Zion is the seat of God's sovereign rule and his authority. Uh, today, when you and I meet as the church, as the body of Christ, we experience something of this. Uh, you see, God is, is, is saying to them, uh, uh, not just to them, but, but God is saying to us that he wants to bless the point. But Zion becomes the seat of God's authority. And how does God get his authority in heaven carried out here on earth? He does it through you and me. He does it through the, his churches. And so here is, is a blessing that's much broader than just for the nation of Israel. It is also for those of us who are part of his body today. So he's saying here, as he closes, he said, uh, uh, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And then he says, and may you see your children's children. Well, I made that one. <laughs> Did you? Have you made that one? I hope all of you will. I've seen my children's children's children. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So well, what is that prayer about? What does that imply? What had to happen for them to see their children's children? God had to protect them through military assault. They were attacked time and time again. So they're praying, he's praying for security. What had to happen for them to see their children's children? They had to have good health because in those days, infant mortality was very, very high. And for them to see their children's children meant that God would protect them and care for them. You see, that prayer is, a, is more than just a surface prayer. God, may God bless you and may the country prosper and may you experience happiness and may you walk in fear of God and in the circumference of God and as you do, may you be able to see your children's children. May the result of your obedience result in blessings upon God. Now, I'm, I'm going to close. I just put down a couple of, of life lessons, and I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't stay here, but let me just give them to you. Number one, happiness and holiness go together. The happiest you will ever be is when you are pursuing God and when you are walking in the center in the, of His circumference, in the center of His will, fearing Him and loving Him. The happiest we'll ever be will be when we are passionately in love with God. Piper put it this way. God is most... See if I can get it. The essence of it is this. I can't think of the exact phrase. I thought I had it. But the, the more, that's it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Thank you. Weren't y'all members of his church? Yeah. 
No wonder you remember that. That's good. What a great statement. First time I heard that statement, it blew me away. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied? That glorifies God when we are satisfied in him. God is most glorified. He can tell you exactly. Everybody hear that? Let me say it one more time. God is most glorified in us, <clears throat> excuse me, when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, the second thing, the fear of the Lord is expressed in our living. What we do shows who we love and what we value. So the fear of the Lord is not just a theological term. It's a term that relates to life. We evidence the fear of the Lord in the way we live. 